1876, North Carolina lawmakers wrote a new state constitution to prevent black men from voting. Lawmakers enacted a felony disenfranchisement provision that today prevents over 56,000 North Carolinians from casting their ballots. This is Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. Today, we have a very special guest, Daryl Atkinson of Forward Justice, who, if you have not heard before, or if you're not familiar with his work, you're in for a real treat. He is a litigator and an advocate in North Carolina, a state with a long history of disenfranchising people with felony convictions post-incarceration. Now, that law is grounded in racism. The original provision was written specifically to target black men. And Daryl and Forward Justice have led the charge in a very important lawsuit, Community Success Initiatives v. Moore, to challenge this provision as violating the North Carolina State Constitution. If you don't know him, Daryl Atkinson is the co-director and co-founder of Forward Justice. Prior to joining Forward Justice, he worked at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, another really important and great voting organization in Durham, North Carolina, and served as the first second chance fellow for the United States Department of Justice under former Attorney General Loretta Lynch. In 2014, Darrell was recognized by the White House as a re-entry and employment champion of change for his extraordinary work to facilitate employment opportunities for people with criminal records. Darrell, welcome to Defending Democracy. Good to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. So let me start at what seems like to me the logical place, which is how did you get into this work? Well, um... That is um, a bit of an odyssey. I didn't one day wake up and decide that, you know, I wanted to do this type of work. My, my life circumstances kind of hurled me in that direction. In 1996, I was convicted of a first-time nonviolent drug crime um, and given a 10-year sentence. I served a four-year mandatory minimum on that 10-year sentence. This was 1996, two years after the passage of the 94 crime bill which ended all post-secondary educational opportunities via Pell Grants. I went into prison with the high school diploma. I came out with the high school diploma in the state of Alabama where I was incarcerated. Wasn't nearly as progressive as some of other states in offering any kind of college or post-secondary education. So I pretty much languished inside met a group of jailhouse lawyers that really inspired me to want to go pursue the law once I got out. And fortunate enough for me, I had a loving family to return to that could provide me food, clothing, and shelter. And I could think I didn't have those immediate Maslonian pressures weighing me down about where was I going to live? What was I going to eat? How was I going to provide for myself? And as a result, I was able to go back and get my associate's degree, bachelor's degree, law degree. I'm licensed to practice law in Minnesota and North Carolina. I've been practicing in North Carolina for 15 years. So our work around the criminal legal system, felon disenfranchisement, fees and fines, um, 
trying to eliminate racial profile and all of it's really grounded in my personal experience and people like me who've been touched by the system. And when did you start working with Forward Justice? I'm one of the co-founders. We uh, started as a project in 2016, full-blown incorporation 2017, and we've been rocking and rolling ever since. So the most infamous, wrongly decided Supreme Court case involving voting in the last 50 years, I would, I would argue, came out of Alabama, the Shelby County case, which struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. For those of you who don't know, Section 5 prohibited states and jurisdictions with histories of racial discrimination in voting for making changes to their voting laws without having those changes reviewed in advance to make sure they didn't discriminate against minority voters. And in that decision, Chief Justice Roberts said that times have changed. And I just wonder your perspective as someone who grew up in Alabama, experienced the criminal justice system in Alabama, have worked as a lawyer in North Carolina, which was also covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. What do you, what do you have to say about that? What do you, how, do you, how do you come to terms with a Supreme Court that would, that would say that? I think it's just simple, Mark. He was wrong <laughs> in that immediately after Shelby County, our General Assembly in North Carolina passed a monster voter suppression bill where they were trying to institute voter ID, limit same-day registration, uh, uh, stop 16 and 17-year-olds from being able to pre-register a number of different pro-democracy reforms that had been fought for over the years. They put it all in one piece of legislation to try to undo it. And we sued over that. And the Fourth Circuit said that that legislation offended the Constitution because it was targeting, and here's the quote, targeting African-Americans with almost surgical precision in the way that it was trying to divest them of their political power and disenfranchise them and their right to vote. And this happened immediately after Shelby County. So I would say the evidence, not only in North Carolina, but in 11, I think, out of the 13 southern states that have passed some form of suppressive voter uh, regressive bill since Shelby County was passed, that the evidence is clear that things haven't changed so much and that really the fight for a multiracial democracy in this country is fragile and has never really been secure, right? I mean, 1865 to 1877, you had the breakthrough of the 15th Amendment. In 1959 to 1971, you had the breakthrough of the Voting Rights and the Civil Rights Act, right? And for us, when we think about our, one of our missions is to create a third reconstruction in this country. And one of the tent poles to do that is to expand access to the ballot by to previously excluded groups. That's why we bought the litigation around rights restoration and people convicted of felonies who are living in our communities, paying taxes, working jobs, doing everything that everybody else does, but doesn't have a civic voice in their community because we wanted to unlock the vote and expand the ballot to a previously excluded group 
just like it had been done in the first and second reconstructions. Yeah, so let's talk about that. And maybe we should start at the beginning here, which is that I think many people who hear about this issue don't really understand its history. The divesting citizens of their rights, their right to vote, was not um, a neutral policy choice. This was an intentional policy choice, and it was an intentional policy choice aimed based on race. It was aimed at discriminating against black men initially. This was pre-women uh, being given the right to vote. So can you just talk a little bit about the historical reason why we even have these laws. And then I want to pivot to kind of what it means today. But let's make sure everyone is, understands the foundation of this. Sure. So we talked about 1868 and that Reconstruction Constitution that really pushed forward North Carolina and to regain it, admittance to the Union, they had to end slavery, put a ban on property qualifications, and a number of other progressive measures. In the wake of that, in 1876, there was another constitutional convention after the Democrats had taken over, after federal troops had left the South, right, to provide protection to newly freed slaves and being able to exercise their right to vote. Immediately, Southern Dixiecrats retook over power and they instituted a constitutional convention and felony disenfranchisement was put into the North Carolina Constitution and it applied to all felonies where previously it had only applied to the most infamous crimes, meaning like crimes against the state, like treason and things of that nature, right? At the same time, Black codes were instituted that criminalized even the most innocuous and trivial behavior. If you couldn't prove that you had a job, for example, you could be convicted of vagrancy. And we know about Douglas Blackman's work in slavery by another name and how once the black codes were passed and the criminalization of black men happened, uh, it was one way to disenfranchise them of their right to vote that had just been given to them via the 15th Amendment. In North Carolina specifically, this practice, you could be prior to the Constitutional Amendment when it was you could be disenfranchised for conviction of an infamous crime or infamous punishment. So if you were convicted of one of these black codes and you received an infamous punishment, an infamous punishment was a public whipping. If you received that infamous punishment, you would be disenfranchised. We put evidence into the record, Mark, that historically they went on a widespread whipping campaign to disenfranchise black men in advance of the passage of the 15th Amendment, because this idea that we had to neuter this political power was at the forefront of their minds. And so once the Constitutional Amendment came into place in 1876, immediately in 1877, implementing legislation was passed. And that implementing legislation disenfranchised and really put three things into play that remain today. Number one, People convicted of all felonies were disenfranchised, not just the most infamous crimes. Number two, it made the 
punishment for voting prior to the restoration of your uh, civil rights, it made that punishment a felony and imprisonment attended to that. And then number three, which was really the subject of our lawsuit, it made the disenfranchisement last past any period of incarceration, even while you were living in the community and had rejoined society. Today, surprise, surprise, uh, the law is having the intended effect uh, that it was meant to, meant that it was meant to neuter the political power of black people. Percentage of the voting age population that African-Americans represent in North Carolina is about 22%. If 43% of the people disenfranchised, in every single county that our expert witness did analysis, the disenfranchisement rate for blacks was higher than for whites. A few notable examples, the rate in Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte is, our banking center, was seven to one. The disenfranchisement rate at Chapel Hill in Orange County, where our flagship university is, was eight to one. In our research triangle area, six to one. When you have communities where 20, 30 percent of the black men and women can't vote, and we know voting is a social phenomenon. You know, you learn these social mores from people around you, like your parents and other neighbors. It dilutes the political power, the voting power of those particular people. And it was something that the trial court agreed with us that was violated our Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. On a previous episode, we, we talked about this, a, a parallel constitutional convention, a parallel set of restrictions um, in Mississippi, where you see basically the same reconstruction pattern take place. And I'm wondering, and this is a little bit of a lawyer's question, so uh, in North Carolina, why, why isn't the law struck down for being racist at its origin? In other words, the, the origin of the law was racially discriminatory. And typically in the law, when you have a law that is passed with racial intent, uh, that's enough. You know, that that you don't you don't need to go any further than that to prove that it what the impact is, as you point out in Mecklenburg and Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Why isn't it enough that the courts strike down these laws for just being racist at their origin? In our case, and in many of these cases, the legislature in subsequent years will amend the law. And courts now in their jurisprudence have determined that we should give these legislatures a clean slate, right? That they don't necessarily inherit the racist intent of their predecessors, right? And that then calls into question these factors, Arlington Heights, right? These five or six different factors that you look at to assess whether intent should carry through from its original racist origins. What's notable in our case is that the racist intent just wasn't present in 1877. Our trial court found that when the law was amended in 1971 and in 1973, those general assemblies had independent racial motivations in passing the law. Number one, 
they knew the disparate racial impact that the law was having on black folks. The three African-American, well, two in 1971, three in 1973. Out of 170 members of the General Assembly now, the three African-American legislators who were championing this law let folks know that this is disproportionately impacting our community. So they had knowledge of the disparate impact at the time that they amended the law to continue to disenfranchise people who lived in our communities on probation, parole, and post-release supervision. Number two, our expert also put into the record and from via deposition from one of those lawmakers, uh, Senator Mickey Michelle, that these legislators were commonly using overt racial slurs in the General Assembly and express overt racial views oftentimes, uh, commonly in, in open public. And then contextually, let's think about what 1971 was. You know, it wasn't this bastion of progressivity. Let me let me give an example. North Carolina, by referendum, failed to take out the literacy test in this constitution in 1971, right? So the public sentiment at that time was still very much entrenched in white supremacy and overt racism. We put all of that into the record. And what's notable, the opposing side put nothing into the record that propounded any race neutral motivations in the face of all of those, uh, all of that evidence that showed racial motivations, evidence and intent. So whether they want to go on the 1877 analysis, if they're true to the record, which they should be bound towards, or whether they want to look at 71 and 73, the law had intentional racist motivations at its original intent and when it was amended. Yeah. And, you know, I think that everyone listening needs to recognize that um, the courts are making a choice here. I mean, the courts are making a choice here. They're not bound to turn a blind eye to that history. They're, they're not bound to give the legislature not just the benefit of the doubt, but a extrapolated, you know, made up cockamamie theory of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I was in law school in North Carolina in, uh, in the early 90s, uh, which is well past 1971. And Jesse Helms was running a racist campaign for U.S. Senate, and he enjoyed wide, widespread support in that state. He won that election. Um, I, in 20, uh, 2013, 2014, I guess 2014, was in a courtroom in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in the earliest stages of the case that you all eventually went on to, to win and had a lawyer for the state of North Carolina tell me that to that day, the literacy test was in place. And that in, in their view, that that was, that that was okay. So these are not, these are not, you know, this is not ancient history. And so I, I hope people understand that. Tell folks who are not, who have not followed your specific case or are not experts in the court system, tell them, what happened in your case? Where is it? What happens next? Like, what's the what's the progress of things? You know, we are a movement lawyer in shop. 
Mark. We try to bring movement-based litigation that's going to help our partners and our movement partners achieve their goals. And this case really came about because we're part of a coalition called the Second Chance Alliance. And around 2011, these folks started figuring out that, hey, we can't just provide services to folks. That's important. But we also got to be able to influence public policy. And they started going to the General Assembly. But many of them didn't have the right to vote because they were still on probation, parole or post-release supervision. And they were like, man, it's like they got cotton in their ears and can't hear us because they don't see us as voting constituents. Right. We got to change that. Right. So our members, our Second Chance Alliance members brought this issue to us. As a result, we started thinking of creative ways that we could help them. And in 2019, we brought this lawsuit challenging the state's practice of denying people on probation, parole, and post-release supervision, some 56,000 North Carolinians, their right to vote. In 2020, we won at summary judgment. And for, forgive me if this is rudimentary for the folks who, the, the people who- No, no, it's good. Explain work. it. <laughs> summary judgment is a stage in the case where you can tell the judge, you know what, Your Honor, we got enough evidence right now for you to decide this issue. And we won at summary judgments on two of our claims related to fees and fines. In North Carolina, to obtain what's called an unconditional discharge to get your voting rights back, you have to pay off all fees, fines, and costs related to your contact with the criminal legal system. The average amount for a person convicted of a felony uh, on probation is over $2,441. So you got to pay to get your voting rights back, right? And the trial court found that this violated the North Carolina Constitution under two different provisions our ban on property qualifications provision and under the equal protection clause because it created a wealth-based classification between similarly situated folks, right? In 2011, we went to trial on our remaining claims, our intentional race discrimination claims and our free elections clause claims, and we won at trial on all of our claims. Uh, that was appealed to the Court of Appeals, and we, we, the, the decision was partially stayed for a period, mostly under Purcell Doctrine, which, once again, for the people with non-legal training, courts are reluctant to make changes shortly before an election because it can cause, you know, chaos and confusion. But after our municipal elections were over, they said this ruling has to go into effect. And so July 27th, 2022, all people on probation, parole, post-release supervision had their voting rights restored, some 56,000. And we went on a, a task of letting those folks know and trying to register as many as possible. The case was taken up by our state Supreme Court prior to our November 2022 elections. Now, when we initially filed the lawsuit, composition of the court was six to one, six Democrats, one Republican. That in no means uh, determines an outcome 
because quite frankly, both Democrats and Republicans have culpability when it comes to the criminal legal system, felony disenfranchisement. But at least we felt, you know, it might give us a fair tribunal to appear in front of. Since 2020, that partisan advantage has shifted from 61 to 5 to 2 Republicans. But we still felt confident in our case because the record is the record. The evidence is the evidence. Stars decisis matters, or at least we still think it does, right? And so that case was taken up by the Supreme Court just past February. I was one of the oralists in oral argument before this new court making our case, and we are uh, waiting on a decision from the court now. I want to pick up one thing that you said that I'm sure perked the ears of a lot of our listeners, which is this fines and penalties provision, because many of the people who I talked to were in were excited by and frankly heartened by the work that Desmond Mead did in Florida in the getting the restoration of rights state constitutional ballot initiative passed. And, and, and it was celebrated because in order to get a ballot initiative passed in Florida, you have to get, I can't remember, 60% or 60%. 60%. Yeah. So this idea was like, look, this is a major accomplishment because you got more than 60% of voters in Florida in support of this. And then it feels like the legislature or DeSantis pulled the rug out from all of the folks who are supposed to benefit from this. I mean, all the folks who are supposed to benefit from this, they set up this trap of this fines and penalties provision. If people's rights are restored, what's this? I mean, I don't see anyone who, you know, doesn't pay their parking ticket have voting rights uh, suspended. Like, what what is this fines and penalties? It feels like fine print that is meant to just pull the right away from people. I think one of the things that we got to be crystal clear and and one of the things I was trying to be crystal clear with with the court and in a lot of our public messaging. We are not attacking the fee and fine regime that states levy against people. That's a lawsuit for another day. What we are attacking is tethering the right to vote to the payment of those fees, fines and costs. That's what we need to be able to decouple because even, and this is maybe we're getting a little nerdy here, Mark, even under a rational basis review, right? It is irrational to premise the voting rights on the payment of costs to people who, many of whom have already been declared indigent by the court because they get access to indigent defenders, public defenders. We've already deem them too poor to pay, and then to levy the fees and fines on them, okay, we may decide as a society that that's uh, an appropriate additional punitive sanction, but tethering civic rights to that has no rational meaning. It makes no sense because you're simply premising the right on wealth. Plain is simple. Mm -hmm. You could have two individuals Two North Carolinians convicted of the same crime, given the same amount of duration of probation, given the exact same amount of fees, fines and costs. And the one that has money can buy their voting rights back and the one who doesn't can't. 
And in no democracy should the amount of money that you have in your pocket be a determiner of whether you have a civic voice. And in fact, the Supreme Court in a series of cases in the 1960s held that discriminating and voting based on wealth is not permissible. It's unconstitutional. This seems not just to be a, uh, an easy policy judgment, but, but should be an easy question of law. But, you know, we all know that sometimes the easiest questions of law don't wind up with the right answers. I, I want to take the time we have remaining, though, and talk about um, what this means for the individuals, but also the communities. Because it seems to me, you know, setting aside the law and the Equal Protection Clause and all of that, that we all, all of us, who want a fair society, want a safe society, want you know, more, more successful re-entry, that everyone should have a stake in having restoration of rights. So, so talk about what it means for communities that we don't allow it and what it would mean for communities when we do allow it. Yeah, I think the, maybe the best way to do this is to channel one of our individual plaintiffs in describing what this means, Ms. Shakita Norman. Shakita is a mother of five children in Wake County. That's where Raleigh, our capital, is. She got in trouble um, and was convicted of a felony and had to do what was called special probation. She had to do weekends in jail in addition to her probationary period. This was prior to the pandemic. Once the pandemic hit, she couldn't do weekends in jail. They put a prohibition on all kind of in and out coming unnecessarily, right? Only for the most serious types of offenses. As a result, she was stuck on probation and couldn't get off. While at the same time, this mother of five kids, there's a school board election happening in Wake County. And you know what those superintendents were going to decide, Mark? They were going to decide if her kids had to attend in-person school, what were going to be the mass requirements, what were going to be the vaccination requirements, all manner of things that directly impacted her life and the life of her children. But because of this law, she could not vote, right? Because she owed money, she could not vote. And so that only impacts her. That impacts her children and impacts the larger community. And our expert witness, Dr. Tracy Birch, she's a noted political scientist that has looked at this issue of felon disenfranchisement across a number of states, looked at the voter participation rates of both registration and turnout in a number of states in a number of different elections. And she found that and put evidence into the record that voting is a social phenomenon. I remember going to vote with my parents, and that's how I learned the importance of being civically engaged. This most recent election, I took my 10-year-old daughter, and she went, and they had a nice little picture booth, and me, her, and her mom took pictures. It'll be something that she'll remember. But when you can't do that, and you see no one participating, right? And no one in your family is talking about being civically engaged. And now I extrapolate that to 20, 30% of the larger community. It divests those communities of substantial equal voting power, which legally violates our North Carolina Constitution, 
but also from just a plain right and wrong kind of perspective. It just doesn't feel right that my neighbor who sits right next to me on church, who paying their income taxes, paying their sales tax, doing all the things that we're doing in the community to contribute to the public good, they have no voice, right? And we as a society shouldn't want to alienate people. And we also found that it's criminogenic. It's criminogenic in of itself. Explain, explain, explain that term because that won't, some of our audience won't know that. And it's a really important point. It, it, it is, it can be crime causing, correlatively linked to people committing further crimes because they are alienated from society. They cannot exercise their civic voice and everything flows from the vote as far as employment policies, housing policies, things of that nature. And criminologists have found that it doesn't help reentry, it actually hurts it. And so if we're trying to create a more virtuous, safe community, we should want to welcome these folks. And there's no other better way to do it than letting them have a civic voice in our society. So you obviously are an expert in this in North Carolina and around the country. So I want to take um, uh, the opportunity to ask you what you make of the progress, the slowness of the progress, in my view, the lack of courage of political leadership, in my view, around the country. You know, I hear some folks say that they're optimistic, you know, with progress being made. To me, it feels like it's this should be faster. It should be easier. What's your what's your sense on a national level on uh, about how states are doing around this? There have been some changes in the last decade with more states trying to liberalize their laws in this respect. Um, but it is painfully slow. And there's recently been a backlash where I think, you know, and let's take Florida as an example. This issue has unnecessarily been politicized. And when I talk to directly impacted people, we aren't doing this for Democrats. We aren't doing this for Republicans. We aren't doing this for independents. Because as I stated, we talk about mass incarceration and the collateral consequences attended to it. All of those folks got culpability when it comes to that matter. The reason that these laws and the changes around these laws are important to directly impacted people because once we have that civic voice, it forces all of those elected representatives to have to bring their best second chance ideas to us as a voting block. We're like anybody else, right? Bring your best second chance ideas, right? And I think one of the things that we can do a better job of, and I'm data in North Carolina shows this, that the idea of partisan advantage is really overstated. It depends on what part of the state you are, right? So like in Florida, a white man in, in, in Tallahassee is probably going to vote with his demographic trends just like he normally would, even if he wasn't convicted of a felony. So it isn't about advantaging one political party or the other. It's about giving people who live in our country and who are doing everything they can to be a member of our society the voice to participate in that society. And that's one thing that I would hope listeners could be able to break through and really hear. This isn't about D's or R's. This is about people. I have not seen, I, I look at a lot of data and a lot of studies. I, 
I don't think that the wealth of data on this would suggest that there is much of a partisan advantage one way or the other. I mean, you can you can kind of slice and dice it, as you said, locally, state by state. But but honestly, it is about doing the right thing. It is about expanding democracy. You know, getting closer, getting closer to the ideal that we say we're all for, um, and also really strengthening our communities, giving everyone a stake in the outcome. Quick, quick story, Mark. When we we don't just let our wins live in the courtroom, right? Once we once we won this win, we went out in the community and started letting the word be known. We sent people direct mail. We text blasted them. We phone banked. And I remember this one conversation with this gentleman who was, you know, I could tell through his accent, he was white and rural. Uh, and, you know, he let it be known, hey, man, I'm going to vote for Trump. And da 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 when I was telling him that his rights were restored. And I was like, that doesn't matter to me. That's your choice. That's the whole point of this. You get to vote for who you want to, right? And so if we can just really hammer that point home, that this is a foundational principle of our country, which is democracy. But when you really look at the history, we shouldn't be surprised about the push and pull, the back and forth, because the fight for a true multiracial democracy in this country has always been a push and pull and a fight. Our biggest quarrels have been about who's included in the we and we the people. We're trying to expand that we to include people who've been convicted of felonies, but it's always been a fight about who's in that we and we the people. Well, you're doing tremendous work. You're doing really among the most important work that anyone can support in this country. So I hope everyone will support Forward Justice. I hope everyone will follow your work. What can people do? if they care about this issue, if they want to know more about your work, about Forward Justice, you know, what can people do to help this fight? So to donate is real easy. You can go to the website, www.forwardjustice.org. It'll be a donate button where you can contribute and, and, and resources obviously help. But also on the website, on our Unlock the Vote, nc.org website, the website that's ex explicitly devoted to our disenfranchisement work, we have where you can uh, become a volunteer because until the court takes this right away, we're still trying to register as many people as we can. Right. And make sure that those folks are on the voting rolls so you can become a volunteer and you can phone bank with us. You can text blast with us uh, and you can do that from all around the country. You don't have to necessarily be in North Carolina. Well, I ask everyone listening to this to do that, to support forward justice to follow these cases. Daryl, thank you for joining us today. You are welcome back anytime. Anytime you want to give us an update or there's information that you want us to share about your work or about forward justice's work, please uh, let us know. Thank you so much for having me. As always, you can find all of the cases, court filings, and articles we mentioned in today's episode linked in the show notes below. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review. To find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and elections news, visit democracydocket.com and subscribe to our free daily and weekly newsletters. We'll see you next time. 
Today's episode was produced by Paige Moskowitz, Alexa Rothenberg, and Sophie Feldman. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz with help from Sophie Feldman. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.